God is a cheerful giver. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And we are asking ourselves tonight, Lord, how can I position myself more and more to be a cheerful giver? We are certainly not born in that state. There is no infant born and there is no young child who cheerfully gives. One of the first words they learn is mine. Mine, mine, my, my, mine. So it's an area in which we must grow. It's an area in which we must always have our heart being remolded and reshaped after his heart. So we come to these well-known verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses uh, 6 to 8, the verses that we're looking at. It's in the context of a larger passage. The Apostle Paul will be going there to Corinth, and he, he will be taking up an offering that he already told them about, and he's kind of reminding them that he's getting ready to come. And that's the context we pull this from. But a few things as we look, and here's the pattern tonight. We're going to first have the word, and then we're going to have the nerd. We're going to nerd out on the second part, because there are things we want to know and understand financially to apply to our lives to be able to position ourselves in this way. But let's spend our time in the word. First of all, let's position ourselves to give bountifully. And you see it right there in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let's not take this verse and turn it into some prosperity gospel nonsense of just sow the seed into this ministry and it will multiply and all that stuff. Let's not do that. Let's just stand before a a holy God who loves and gives and say, make me more like you. I want to give and I want to do it bountifully, plentifully. It's a lifestyle. It's a mindset. It's a way of living and giving. And anywhere you are in these seven steps we've talked about over the last couple weeks, you ought to already be giving bountifully. That doesn't mean foolishly. That doesn't mean beyond what you're able. That certainly doesn't mean there's a new project and so I'll put things on my credit card because the church needs it. We're not talking foolishly, but to have a heart of generosity. Wherever you are on the steps, please never say, well, I don't make enough now to tithe and it's not part of the law anyway. But later when I have more, I'll start tithing. If you have that kind of mentality and that kind of heart when you have little money, you're going to have it when you have lots of money. You're just going to keep adjusting that way. Well, you know, the tithing, it's part of the law. I understand that. We know that. And so you're not going to do that by compulsion. You're not going to do that because you're, you've become convinced it's a law. You're going to say it's a principle in the word of God. It was way before the law. Abraham did it. And Jacob did it before the law. Moses, by the time he codified it into the law, Jesus praised it. He said, it's well that you've done that, but you haven't done the weightier things. And Paul kind of conformed it into the New Testament church. And in Hebrews, it's connected to the everlasting priesthood of Melchizedek. So let's say, first of all, I'm going to have an overall view of this, and I'm not going to use it as an excuse to say, right now I'm not positioned to give at all. You set your principles right and understand that when you have little, you'll do it when you have much. 
If you're not doing that kind of thing, now this is not a message on tithing. This is positioning ourselves to give bountifully, to live a life that way. And you get that thing down early because here's the thing about money. The more money you get, all it will do is magnify what you already are. So if you're stingy and you're disordered and if your budget is upside down, and so you don't put giving first, giving to the Lord, and it's upside down, as you increase, you're just going to become more of who you are. But boy, you set that down right from the beginning and get that right and follow those principles. God can do so much. So I want to become a bountiful giver and the bountifulness the bounty of it won't be in what the measure of it is compared to someone else it will be between you and God and what God is allowing to flow through your fingers so to speak remember money is currency it flows it moves from the one who doesn't manage it well to the one who does manage it well and you say I want to manage it well and part of that will always be a giving to God and being generous, whether I have little or lots flowing through my fingers. And I will sow bountifully with the understanding that I will reap bountifully, as God's word says, whether that might be in material blessings or spiritual blessings. And so you look at that. You know, if at the... If at the time when some of us might have little money, what we have with little money, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier, it will be what we do with lots of money. And so if you're self-indulgent, you're just going to be very self-indulgent. If you're self-indulgent when you're young with what you have and you don't tithe and you don't save and you don't budget and it's about me, 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 and then all of a sudden somehow you increase money, you win the lottery, you're just going to be self-indulgent on a bigger scale. If you're self-destructive, you're just going to be self-destructive on a bigger scale because you could buy more of this substance and get more of that. So having our heart right and saying, God, I desire to be bountiful in my giving and as I'm, even though this is not directly this text, but just repeating this a couple times, toward God, being bountiful toward him first and see what God will do with that. And so help us, Lord, to be bountiful You can go all the way up to the seventh step with money. And if you haven't got this first part, and if you haven't gotten these things, uh, these principles from this text, you can have lots and lots of money and still not be cheerful. Still not be giving, still not be joyful. There are people who have amassed wealth and it became their security, so they hold on to it with such tight fists. I don't care what their bottom line looks like. That is the poorest quality of life. They are poor. And there are people who make all this money only to have the fear of losing it and going back to what they once were. That is no quality of life. Lord, fashion us after you. Help us to be bountiful givers. Number two, as we look at the text here, help us, Lord, to be intentional. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, as he purposeth in his heart. 
uh, how I'm used to hearing it in my head, right? Purposeful, intentional about our giving, things that we have decided because in our area of giving, even as we grow more and more bountiful in our giving, we're going to plan it. We're going to be intentional about it. That's a big word when you think of these seven steps. There's that intensity and the intentionality. Both of those are very important. I will intensely get myself out of debt. I will intensely get myself into a position where I'm investing for the future. I will do all of those things and I will be very intentional about it. Intentionality absolutely demands discipline. There's just no way around this. If you aren't disciplined, if, if you listen to these three messages or these three Sundays and you get a few principles and you go out and you do nothing, I really, some people came up to me. I I heard someone texted me and said, we went home, we sat down, and we did a budget. Haven't done one in years. Praise God, they picked up something. So if you're not going to be disciplined and do some things with this, you're really not stepping into intentionality, which is such an important part of this. As we move on to the next one, number three, let's position ourselves to give bountifully, intentionally, cheerfully. It says not reluctantly. That word it means not sorrowfully, not in pain or grief as in mourning. It's a pretty heavy word. You get to the point where giving hurts. Ouch. It's not the kind of giving heart that God is looking for. It's not something. We don't ever want to be a ministry that tries to manipulate or force or pressure someone into giving because we wouldn't want anyone to do it reluctantly in that sense. But boy, if your heart's right and you have things in balance, it won't be reluctant. There's this commercial I see on TV. Two people go to the hotel counter and the one gets the discount and the other doesn't. And the one hands over his card freely and the other one who founds out she didn't get a good deal, she has a little tug of war with her, with her credit card with the person on the other side of the counter. She's kind of reluctant to give that over. Ho- hopefully it's a debit card and not a credit card. They don't say on the commercial, but it's probably a credit card. And she's doing that. Oh Lord, help me not to be a reluctant giver. Position me. Help me to be in a position where I'm not so stressed out. Remember we talked about that financial stress and the toll it takes on a marriage, on a person, on their health. Hopefully I'm in in a position where I can give and it doesn't have that reluctance to it. One, because my heart's right and I don't think all the money is mine, mine, mine with clenched fists. And two, because I'm not so stressed out about it. Oh Lord, help me to be a cheerful giver and not giving under compulsion or out of necessity that's imposed maybe by the circumstances or by some law that's given or argued into it or badgered into it. Lord, make me a cheerful giver. Why? For the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Anytime you're in the scriptures and you get to this statement, the Lord loves or God loves or the Lord hates or God hates, it ought to arrest your thoughts, all other thoughts, and demand your full attention. 
When the Bible says God loves something, I want to love what he loves. When the Bible says God loves something, I want to be in that place of what he loves. Doesn't that make good sense? I mean, when we look at that passage and we read through the whole thing, and there's some great verses in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and they gave of their own selves first, and a lot of great principles. But I get to that God loves a cheerful giver. What God loves, I want to love. And I want to be in that place. And by the way, it would be a good study in contrast to this on your own time. Go to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19. There are six things that God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And you study those seven things. If God hates it, I want to hate it. And if God hates it, I don't want it in me at all. I kind of want to go down through the seven. I want to start with the lying tongue and end with he that soweth discord upon among the brethren. I kind of want to preach all seven, but it's not the purpose of this evening. But go study that all seven of those. If God hates it, I hate it, and I don't want it at all in me. But if God loves it, oh, Lord, help me to be a cheerful giver in my spirit and to be able to be a cheerful giver because of my circumstances. I don't think that happens by accident. It doesn't happen haphazardly or carelessly. And like I say, the habits, the attitudes that you develop when you have little are likely only to be amplified when you have lots. So, Lord, help us to be cheerful givers. And then finally, Lord, help us to give confidently. Not confident in our bank account, not confident in our investments, confident in who you are in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way, it says in verse 11, to be generous in every way. This is God's work in And through you, cooperate with him. Put yourself in a position. We already know that if we revert to old ways, if we're not walking in the spirit, then we're going to tend toward selfishness. But when we're walking in the spirit, we're going to tend more and more to selflessness. And so those are just a few thoughts as we look at the passage And now as we switch from the word to the nerd, are you ready to put your nerd on? I said I'm going to save half of this service so we can nerd out for a while. Are you ready? Did you bring your glasses and your tape? Because there are some things we're going to have to understand. We're going to have to learn to calculate certain things. What is my net worth financially? What is my equity? Huh? Nerd word for the accountant. Are you ready to nerd out for a little bit? I want to be able to calculate my net worth. I want to be able to calculate compound interest. And I want to be able to calculate mortgages. Because it's the biggest investment. It's the biggest purchase that most of us will ever make in our lifetimes. Unless you're Elon Musk or something like that. And so I want to calculate. I'm going to help you put your nerd on. Dose of the old animal magnet. Oh, yeah. 
talk, Carl. I'm so glad to be at a church where I could do something like that. I grew up in a lot of churches. If I did something like that, they would have, oh my goodness, I would have been cast out. I would have been locked away in a jail or something. I would have been excommunicated. We just need to nerd out a little bit. There's a consummate nerd. I was watching it with Carol, and she said, is that Pastor Lardy when he was young? And I said, Carol, you stop that. That just wasn't right. She shouldn't have said that. And she said, yeah, because he started with that. I said, don't talk that way. All right, let's get back. Uh, Let's get back. We do want to nerd out a little bit. It's important that we do this. Every one of you should take this as homework. I should have said it last week. Uh, Your homework is to go home and do a budget. Now, I'm not going to check your homework, but that would have been a good exercise for anybody and everybody. This can be your homework this week. It would be calculating your net worth or what we call equity. So again, we're in these steps. We're looking at them again. And now we're looking at four and building up. When we start thinking of investing, we get to a place where we first invest 15% of everything we have. Once our debts are paid off and we have that emergency fund, I'm going to live on 85% and I'm going to invest 15% into future retirement. What? Live on 85%? You can do it if you choose to. If you get intentional, if you realize, and I hope as we look at calculations, you'll be convinced that the time to start is now. And looking at a whole bunch of you who look kind of more like me, you're going to be like, the time to start that was 30 years ago. So I'm going to have to work a lot harder to be investing. And if you have children or you're saving for college and then you pay off that house and you get up to building wealth where you can give generously and bountifully and more impactfully speaking of the numbers because you got there. As we think of the word investing, it's bigger than the word saving because you're saving up for things, you save for emergencies, you save for purchases, and you save for the future. But when you're investing, you're doing a little bit more than just saving. You're trying to get as strategic as you can, starting to understand some things to build where that savings is growing at a very different rate. We can go to the next one. Every household should have a budget. I took somebody's suggestion and moved savings right under giving from the budget that I gave last week. But everyone should be doing this in their home where they have a budget. And when you're talking about a budget, you're talking income and expenses. Your income and your outgo. The word expenses isn't technically right for everything down there because some of the things are your expenses, but also some of those are I'm telling all of my money where to go, so it's going to be zero at the end. And every penny I get in, it has an assignment of where it's going, and some of it is going into savings. That's not really an expense. That's you telling your money where to go for savings purposes. So everyone should know in the church, at the quarterly meetings, we always share an income statement, or we call it a profit and loss statement, same thing. So we kind of see that. And then there's something else we show called a balance sheet. 
And every one of us should have a budget that we're operating on month by month. We ought to do it. We ought to do it together. You married couples who separate your finances, you're so out of step with God's word. And the two shall become one, but you have private finances. And in your private finances, I don't tell him that and I don't tell her that because he'll do this and she does that. And that's why you are so out of step with God's word. And if you're in that boat, Financial counseling isn't your greatest need. Marital counseling is. I'm just going to say that and throw it out there. And it's okay if somebody gets upset with me. We could talk about it privately and look at it. That's not to say that a couple can't say, hey, we're going to have this account because this is where you do all the shopping and stuff from. And I'm going to have this account that I take care of these bills from. But they're not private accounts. They're both in both of your names. And you, you all know what's going on in there. If not, I know I'm off on a rabbit trail, but... Boy, maybe I should just sit there for a couple minutes. Back to the income statement. Let's nerd out. First of all, I want to know my budget, the money that comes in, the money that goes out, and I want to assign it all. What I'm going in savings is actually what's called profit. So at the end of the month, I said I'm going to save, in this example, $1,000, and I get to the end of the month, and I did so well. I not only saved that $1,000, but I was under in a few other categories, and I have a little more to throw into savings because I operated under budget. So that's called income minus expenses equals your net gain or your net loss. You profited or you lost. The other report called the balance sheet is, if we can go to that please, where you take your assets minus your liabilities. Everybody say assets. Good, that's different from profit. Your assets are the things that you have that are worth money. I know a lot of us know this already, so excuse me, because I'll speak to everyone. So if there's someone in here who isn't one of those money people with those kind of terminology, so let me not insult anybody or be condescending. Your assets are all the things that you have that have monetary value that can be sold, that could be liquidated and turned into cash some easily. You could usually sell a car in a couple weeks. Some might take longer, like selling your house, but those are your assets. And you can see Bob, Bill, and Brian there, and as I'm talking, kind of look around at those. And so you take all your assets minus your liabilities. Those are all of your debts. And you get a bottom line number. That's your net worth. That's a gauge that is used to determine your financial health. If you were an organization, it's a gauge a bank will use to see if you're somebody they could make a loan to, uh, that type of thing. So let's take Bob as our example here. And Bob has $100 in his pocket. He has 500 in his checking account. He has a savings account with $1,000 in it. He has a really nice car because Bob got out of college, and the first thing he wanted was a really nice car. So he took out a loan on it, but he's been paying that loan. He's got a nice car, and he could sell that in today's market because used cars are kind of overpriced right now. I think they're going to start correcting themselves, but he's got a $26,000 asset. Of all his assets, his car is his biggest one. He's still renting. He doesn't own a house or have a mortgage or anything like that. And then Bob's brother Bert owes him 400 bucks, and Bob knows Bert's good for it. So he listed it there, and he said, if I total up all my assets in the world, I've got $28,000 worth. But you look at his liabilities, he's still got a lot on his 
college loan and he's been using his credit card even though he has money in his checking account or in his savings account but he's been using his credit card so he has that as a debt and he still has $7,500 on his car loan you subtract his assets minus those liabilities Bob's equity is negative now which one of us couldn't go home tonight and sit down and list out their assets and look them up and then list out their liabilities and find out where am I. Bill, on a different case, Bill only has mortgage debt remaining. He's got 100 in cash, 500 in the bank. He's fully funded in his emergency savings with 15,000. That would cover him at least three months of, of expenses. He's been building up some savings with 60,000. He's been really working at his retirement there. I guess he has 59000 there. He has a car that could sell for 22000 and he ha- has a home that the resale value is 425000 So that's a big list of assets. The only liability he has left is his mortgage. If I were going to sit there and advise Bill, I would be telling Bill, start throwing money at that mortgage and get it down till you get rid of it. Don't let it stick around a day longer than it has to because you're paying a lot of interest. Get yourself to be totally free. But in his equity, if you look at it, he could say, financially, I'm worth 357000 He's not Elon Musk yet, but he's in a different position than Bob. And Brian, of course, I gave another example. Brian can say, I am a millionaire. Barely. And being a millionaire nowadays of having just a little bit over a million dollars in equity isn't what it once used to be. But you get three different pictures. What is yours? Do the exercise and see where you are. It's a snapshot in time. And we ought to do that each month. Because as you get intentional about your budget and you start knocking out those liabilities, if you have them and you see that thing, it's a good way to start tracking. Am I going forward or backward? It'll help you to stop needing instant gratification and you'll delay gratification when you start looking at things this way. It'll help you not to impulse buy because all of a sudden you've learned to look at your financial picture as an individual, as a household, as a couple in different ways. And again, I will say this, couples need to do this together. Having two separate whole financial systems going on because this one doesn't handle money well or that one or this, you are missing out on the benefits that come with being equally yoked together. I understand there can be familial circumstances that demand a difference to that that should be handled with special counseling you could have somebody who's in addiction and certain protections have to be in place so i'm not saying you could never ever 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 set a boundary like that sometimes it's necessary for survival that's rarely the case and if it is the case again Counseling is a necessary way to do that. So learning to calculate our net worth. I wrote down Elon Musk's, what did I say? It was $262 billion as of September 2022. That's from the Bloomberg Index and Forbes. When our net worth gets to $262 billion, we can do a lot of ministry. 
He's the richest man. He has the highest net worth of any individual. And the way they worded it in the study, on the planet. I'm like, okay, I want to know about the ones on the other planets. Like, who has more net worth than he does? But that's the way they said it. Let's nerd out some more. I don't have to show the video again, do I? Compound interest. What an amazing thing. Benjamin Franklin put it this way. Money makes money, and the money that money makes, makes money. Compound interest is powerful. And if we would start to understand that and start to apply it, it can make all the difference in the world. Compound interest is your best friend when you're saving and investing. Compound interest is your worst enemy when you're borrowing. And if we would understand the power of it. Now, Albert Einstein, there are quotes all over. Albert Einstein said this. He said, compound interest is the greatest force in the world. It's man's greatest invention. It's the eighth wonder of the world. These are from different places. I tried to find primary sources. I couldn't find a single one. I found a ton of people who quote Albert Einstein. I looked up on Snopes, and all they said is it's indefinite. They can't tell if he really said it or not. I don't know if he said it. That's questionable. But I do know this. What is not questionable is that compound interest is very powerful. Warren Buffett said this. My wealth has come from a combination of living in America, some lucky genes, and compound interest. Time is your friend. Impulse is your enemy. Take advantage of compound interest and don't be captivated by the siren song of the market. Now, when you have a lot of really rich people and smart people talking about something like that, I want to know it and understand it. So we are going to go through some compound interest calculations just to make some points. Everybody put their glasses up. Use one finger right in the middle. I should have brought those fake glasses. I was at a party yesterday, and we got fake glasses. I should have brought them for all of you so we could nerd out. Here is a compound interest calculator. The first one we're looking at is just blank. We have not put any initial deposit in, and we didn't say how much we're going to contribute on a monthly rate. We're going to do 45 years of growth, about the average working lifetime of a person from when they start to when they retire. And for most of our examples, right now I'm using 4.4%. And if you say, why 4.4%? Because that's the going rate in a money market account right now. If you just get a checking account, you're not going to get anything on it. You're going to get 0. 0.0 something. But you get a little money market savings account. And right now the average, and that's up. Right, right. See, when the economy goes bad, the Fed kind of knocks up the interest rates. So we'll use that number. If you have, it's actually what I get on my money market account. And as I researched it, that's about the going rate. You can get some closer up to almost a 5% now, and it varies a little. But these will be our examples. So let's go to the next one and look at that. Here is a person making $50,000. That's $24 an hour. It's just an individual 
is a $50,000 salary, but he's going to invest 15%. Not making much. He's kind of just starting out, really, especially for New Jersey. But he says, right from early on, I'm going to do that. I got no debts. I got out of all of that. I don't have debts. I'm going to live on 85%, and I'm going to invest 15%. And if you follow this over the life period, the part on the bottom is the contributions. That part on the top is all interest. Time is your friend here. Long time. As you look at that, I don't know that you could read that little box in the corner, but by the end of the 45 years, this person would have put in 338500 But the interest added on top of that would be 728000 and so he's taken that 338000 and turned it into a million dollars. A kid, excuse me for saying it that way, uh, young people, a young person making $24 an hour who never gets a raise and lives on that amount and lives within that tight budget but will just learn from the beginning to invest 15% of it will retire a millionaire. Most people don't start out making $24 an hour and never get a raise. Most people will increase their income and therefore increase the amount they're investing. Even that person can retire with a million dollars. You will notice the pattern when you look at it as time goes on, the amount that is added in interest increases. That ought to wow us as we look at that and see the power of it. The money that your money makes, makes money. No person should graduate high school without understanding compound interest, how it can work for or against. But largely, that is exactly what happens. There's a reason why we wouldn't want people to know compound interest. Let's look at another example as we go on. Now this person, uh, <clears throat> same exact person, but he has his job and he wants to go to another job and it's just the exact same amount of pay. It's still going to be $24 an hour, which translates to 50000 a year. However, the difference between the one job and the other is this new job has a benefit where they are going to match up to 3% of his retirement. So what he puts in retirement, they'll match up to 3%. So that's going to give him an extra $125 that the company's throwing on that. He would ne- I would tell them, don't say, oh, since they're doing that, I could reduce my amount so I have a little more because I need 15%. No, any match you get is icing on the cake. Put it in there. He's going to end up well over $200,000 ahead. He's now $1.2 million just because he went from this job to that job and they matched his deductions for retirement. So those things are important when you're looking for jobs, even if they're start-out kind of jobs or or whatever, those things can make a huge impact. So he will have put in 400000 amount of that will be from his workplace, but will make 872000 in interest. Money that is made. Now let's say 
We'll go to the next one. Just increase that percentage. You see the blue box there. We went from 4.4 to 6.4. Would you look at that graph, my nerds? Would you nerd out with me and look at the graph on the top of what's happening? That curve is getting bigger and bigger. That's just 2% interest higher. So now I need to start to look not only what a money market account makes, throw my money into that savings, I need to start thinking about what kind of investments might yield me a little more because as that percentage gets higher, that graph goes up. The stock market from its beginnings a little over a century ago to now, if you read what is the average, the ups and downs, don't look at it right now. Those of us with 401ks, just don't look right now. It's painful. You have to look at it over a long period of time because it's going to fluctuate. It's going to go up and down. The average since inception is as high as 11.82%. Some other studies I've read are more like 10%. I've seen some that go as low as 8%. I think we can say 10% might be a good average in the long term for quick calculations. So yes, nerd out a little. Find someone who's a good financial advisor, even pay somebody when you're at that point who's a good financial advisor that can make a huge amount of difference by helping guide you. Look at the difference here with 6.4%. Let's flip over now to 10%. The key is time, because that end part of the graph, when you look at that end part of the graph and you see that line go up, it just keeps compounding more and more. You can get real nerdy and say, are they compounding annually or monthly or daily and that kind of thing, and they make some degree of difference. But that's at 10%. That's huge. Do you know we are talking about a person who makes $50,000 a year, $24 an hour, who has started to put his money into something that over time should average to about 10%. I think that's a little ambitious, but since I've been involved in this, the economy has been, we won't say what those economics are called. I think there's a nickname for it in political circles. Now, let's go to the next one. 24%. You can't find something to invest in that's going to pay you 24%. That's crazy. There are no investments out there. I mean, maybe if you find an Apple startup and you get in earlier, maybe if you got into crypto and you got out in time before it went... Nobody is going to find 24%. Compound interest can work for you or it can work against you. Because there is a multi-billion dollar industry out there that right now new cards are at 24.9%. So there is an organization out there. There is a business out there, there are these bankers who say, hey, loan us your money, and we're going to pay you big 4.4%. Hey, a year and a half ago, it was only 2.9%. Now it's up to 4.4%. So loan us our money, and we're going to pay you interest on that. 
And then we're going to send you a whole bunch of these in the mail. And you're going to have Discover and Chase and Amazon Prime. And you're going to have these. And hey, if you use this card, we'll give you 1% back and 2% on special categories. And even a 3% if you shop at this place. But we're going to charge you 24.99% if you don't pay it off. And most people don't. And we are going to make billions of dollars as an industry. My nerds, did we get the picture tonight of the power of compound interest? Now, don't go beat up a banker. I think we have one in the church family. Please don't do that. That's not the point of this. They're in business to make money. If we are going to position ourselves to give cheerfully and abundantly, let's move on real fast to our mortgage calculator. If we're going to do that, we're going to need to understand, we're going to need to nerd out a little bit to know how to do a budget and follow it and classify our money to see if our money is doing what we told it to do. We're going to need to know what our own net worth is and to track it because we want to be going in the right direction, not the wrong direction. And we want to understand the power of compound interest and make sure it's working in our favor and not against our favor. The biggest purchase most of us ever make is for a home. And we get house fever. We want to have a home. We get the pressure. You're still renting. You're 34 years old and you're still renting. You need to buy a house. You're not buying a house yet. You haven't bought a house and all that kind of thing. And you get all the reasons why you should and you ought to. You ought to be moving to a place where you can buy a house and own the house so that you're not putting money into rent and it doesn't build up any equity or value for you. But you ought not to jump into it foolishly. Well, yes, you can get a house now. We will be creative with our financing. You can get it with nothing down. We can get you in at 10%. All you need is a 10% down payment. You are not ready to buy a house if you don't have 20% to put down. I'm just going to say that in general terms. You are not there. Look at these mortgage calculators, and it's the last thing we'll do before a closing clip from Dave Ramsey. The difference between a 30-year mortgage and a 15-year mortgage, both fixed rate. We're not going to get all technical with that stuff. The person on a 30-year mortgage buys a $300,000 house putting down 60000 so he takes out a loan for 240000 and he just pays his payments every month, going to always have a house payment in 30 years, feels like forever, and he didn't get to a point in life where he built up equity, and they said, get a home equity loan, and you could add on to your house and do this and do that. He didn't go back, he just kept paying His steady payments never paid extra, never did anything else. He is going to spend $811,000 for that $300,000 house. There are the taxes in there too, but we won't get technical about all of that. That's a lot of money. Someone else heard that if you are going to buy a house, at the most, get a 15-year fixed mortgage. That person's going to do the same thing, paying exactly and spend $501,000 on that house. The biggest purchase most of us ever will make, and we just go in like lambs for the slaughter because we don't say, can I afford the price? 
we say, can I afford the payments? Now, the truth is the 15-year fixed will find out that he actually won't get charged 7.998% because right now the amount is about 7.1 whatever follows it. So he's actually going to save because in a 15-year fixed mortgage, he can get a lower rate. So that's going to work more in his favor. But if I only have three, maybe four million dollars that I'm going to have in my working lifetime, that matters. Because the amount of difference I'm paying just in the choice of a mortgage. Don't expect your real estate agent to be your best friend or your banker in that. The real estate agent will give you good advice on how to get the house and negotiate the price down, but they're not going to tell you a whole lot about what kind of mortgage you can get. They're going to advocate a good real estate agent to get the price down and deal with these things. You're going to have to do that on your own or get some good advice. And certainly don't expect the bank to do that. They're in the business of extending, giving mortgages that are likely to make them a lot more money. They would rather make that 309000 than you get that. Compound interest is your best friend when you're investing. It's your worst enemy when you're borrowing. I hope these things are a help to you and that it, if nothing else, it starts us in how I look at these things because they matter. Money matters. We'll close with this clip. Pray and be done. So why does he have me to give? You know, the Bible says in Genesis that you and I are made in his image. We're made in his image. Ray Bakke talks about that. He says that the Bible says in Isaiah that we are knit in our mother's womb. The word knit in the Hebrew is actually more akin to crochet. Any of you have a grandmother that ever crocheted? My granny used to crochet, and she'd make us these great blankets for the couch, and we'd be laying in front of the fire with those crochet blankets. It was awesome. I just think about that. The maker of heaven and earth, the great I am with a crochet needle and an RNA and DNA double helix. <laughs> and in the middle of that is his image. We're made in his image. And so the reason he has us to give is he wants us to become a little more like him. And every time I give, every time I understand I'm not an owner, I move along that spectrum from selfish to selfless. I become a little less preoccupied with me and a little more preoccupied with others. People who don't give live over here. And it doesn't matter whether they're rich or whether they're poor. They don't give of themselves. They have nothing in their life that indicates servanthood. They have nothing in their life that indicates an open spirit. They have nothing in their life that indicates the kind of joy that you get when you get over here on this end and you're giving like crazy because you find out it's the most fun thing you'll ever do with money. And when you start giving, it's flowing through you. And you start to become who you were designed to be. When you start giving, it turns loose creativity. It turns loose passion. It turns loose, it causes reconciliation in relationships you never dreamed would happen. Because you change. It makes you into who you were born to be when you learn to give. That's why God has us to give. It works.
We talk about all these things so we can get there, so that we can give bountifully and make a great impact. Because we had a 15-year mortgage and everything else paid off. And we said, I'm going to knock this thing out in seven years. I'll start doubling up payments and knock down how much interest they're getting for me and pay more principal. And I'm going to put myself in a position where I can give bountifully, cheerfully, generously, and make a great impact. I'm going to have, be able to leave a legacy because my heart got shaped like God's and I was intentional enough to put myself there. What would happen if all of us got in that position? How many more people could we be reaching in Trenton, in Panama, in all different places in the world? I said it last week and I'll say it again. If anyone says, I'd like to know a few technical things on this or that or how to do a budget, come see me. Anyone who talks to me, it will be strictly confidential. We call it like fiduciary trust, so to speak. That's my Roman Catholic days. It'll be the confessional and I'll say five Hail Mary. No. I'd be glad to help in some practical way. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not that by any stretch. There are people in the church who know better than I do and all of that, but I'd be glad to help and maybe point you in some directions where you can get some help in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity I've had over the last three weeks just to share something that you taught me later in life, but that I've become passionate about. Thank you for allowing me to share from that overflow. I pray that it impacts people in this church and it's impactful for your kingdom. May we be dismissed with your richest blessings. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.